on this episode of The Naturist Living Show, The Vagina Monologues. This episode of The Naturist Living Show is brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. At Bear Oaks, we offer traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Free your body, free your mind. www.bearoaks.ca Welcome, dear listener, to the August 2013 episode of The Nature's Living Show. That's episode number 58. My name is Stéphane Deschain. I'm your host for this podcast in this episode. And it's coming right on the heels of the July one, which actually came out in August. So uh, that's why they're so close together. So we're now caught up. So you're still getting everything you've paid for. So thank you for listening. And uh, my apologies for the delay. And uh, thank you for your patience. As you heard in the July episode, we uh, Felicity, uh, Felicity and Jordan were both here for the Naturist Festival. So while she was here, we recorded that uh, her her segment live as more of a discussion between the two of us, and we also di- recorded a second one for the August episode because we knew it was coming right after. So uh, here's Felicity's segment. So YNA got pretty prominently uh, featured in the news recently, huh? Yes, we have. We were in NBC News uh, because an article came out about naturism and young people. And it also featured images from body painting with an artist named Andy Golub, which we also got a lot of press for. Um, We just did a group body painting in Times Square. So those the images were from that. So I really wanted to talk about this NBC article about uh, the naturist movement and uh, is it dying and about recruiting young people. Yeah, well, I mean, and we've had podcasts on attracting young people. And obviously, I mean, you're here at Bear Oaks here for the FCN Festival. Um, do you see a lack of young people? Are there just old people here with uh, sitting around with big beer bellies? I don't. I, I mean, I see a lot of young people, uh, very active people. A lot of people playing volleyball, uh, you know, a lot of families, uh, young people with kids. So it's nice. Yeah, and, and at your events, is it just like old people at your events? No, I mean, the average age is around 28. Uh, we have people of all ages, but uh, we have plenty of young adults at every event, uh, and we're growing as an organization. Yeah, I, I you know, I was upset by the article because... The, it took the position that, you know, there was a, well, first that there was a problem, which there I don't think there is. I think there's just some people, if you don't market to nature, to young people to be naturist, you're not going to get them. But I was upset because the article took such a negative tone, I thought. It was just like, you know, there's all these old farts who are essentially, it almost sounds like they're trying to trick young people into coming. Did you get that feeling? Yeah, I, I did too. Um, it seems like that's always the, the, the angle of these articles and Obviously, this NBC piece is is one of many that's come out uh, in the past, you know, even 30 years. It's just kind of 
promoting ideas that kind of aren't true, you know, that, that nudism is dying. And, and I, I, I told this reporter, like, I don't think it's ever going to die. Uh, (laughs) There's always going to be people skinny dipping. There's always going to be people who, who just have the natural uh, tendency to, to want to be naked. You know, they're, they're, are teenagers who just hang out naked before they even know that naturism, naturism exists as a movement. Yeah, it, I think it's a movement, that, uh, you know, that is, the, the problem is it's lost the fact that it is a movement in a lot of cases. I think it's, uh, you know, I'm sorry to always sound critical, but I think it comes down to the clubs. I think there's a lot of clubs out there that have forgotten what naturism is about and why they're naturist, and they've forgotten that you actually have to campaign and market uh, what your, your your service and you can't just do one thing like put one ad in a newspaper and expect the next day to anybody to shop in fact I don't think putting an ad in newspaper is the thing to do at all right right yeah we're we're very much against uh, we, we say it you know print advertising is just totally outdated and a lot of the clubs and resorts are using outdated methods of advertising and marketing and such and you know, if anything's going to die out, it's going to be these clubs and resorts that that are not adapting and changing, and and perhaps the, the larger organizations as well. If if they aren't um, getting peop getting new members, and and you know, if, if people are no longer feeling a connection to their values and and the way they they are running things. So what's happening at YNA? What are you guys planning for the fall, and how are you going to keep attracting young people? Yeah, the summer has gone by so fast, and this is like this is always our ideal time. We love to be outside, outdoors. Um, but for the colder months, uh, we'll probably have a few indoor parties, and uh, we've we're also looking to do a few workshops uh, with with. A chef who was at our upstate New York event named Sarah Eve Cardell um, to do some raw chocolate workshops, um, even some shamanic drum circle journey kind of things indoors um, in Manhattan. So we're looking to do, you know, maybe naked bowling again, so just some fun indoor events for the winter months. And you've also had some interesting questions uh, for uh, from young people and about young people on some of the. Was it was it your website? Yeah, we have a website called askanudist.com where people can ask any question they want about nudism, naturism, and social nudity, and they'll get an answer from the nudist community. And we recently got a question from a teenager who just discovered naturism. He's going back to school in the fall, and he asked, you know, should I keep this secret or who should I tell or who can I tell? Uh, should I be open about it or, or not tell anybody that I'm a naturist? And I honestly um, wasn't sure how to answer it. I grew up like myself. Um, my parents told me and my siblings just to be very careful about who we tell and kind of not to tell anybody. I was kind of scared to tell my friends. And when I did, I... You know, it was really no big deal, um, but it still seems kind of a tricky issue because, you know, teenagers feel um, a lot of pressure. You know, if they, if they don't have the confidence in themselves, they might face some consequences uh, from their peers, uh, bullying or teasing. Um, and 
if they told even their their teachers, you know, teachers can also get the wrong idea. Um, so, you know, I put the question out there to to our own community to ask, uh, what do people think or how would they answer? Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Because you have these teenagers working at Bear Oaks, and, and they're not just naturists. They, they work at a naturist resort. So this is obviously... Uh, big part of their their lives and and their friends are going to ask them where do you work what do you do do they do they keep it secret do they tell their friends it's a good question and and they do all over the place you know i saw one young woman uh, she at first wasn't telling anyone and then she put it on her facebook um, so at that point, it was pretty open. Uh, she didn't really get too many negative reactions. She got, you know, some people making assumptions, but they had the discussion. Um, her parents are concerned because they think it might affect her career in the future when people find out. But I don't know. I, in this day and age, you know, would you re- not hire somebody because they worked in a naturist club or you find out they're a naturist? Um, you know, in a way, I think uh, when people have concerns about their jobs, it kind of depends on the profession, I guess. Uh, if they needed to maintain a certain reputation, perhaps they wouldn't get hired because somebody would would search their name online. Uh, maybe they are a business person and, and somebody's going to search their name online before they'll do business with them and they'll see that they have some bias against naturism and they're like, well, I'm not going to talk to this person. They, they do all this indecent uh, immoral nature stuff in their past and this looks sexual and you know it is it is a valid concern um, yeah but on the other hand you know if you're Jewish or you're a fundamentalist Christian there's people who don't like religion they don't like religious people you might lose your job or not be hired potentially I guess if somebody's that narrow minded for those reasons too right right and, and there's misconceptions about every kind of uh lifestyle I guess um, but I don't know I guess you know I would tell teenagers to uh, to use their own discretion you know they probably have a good idea of how good a friend somebody is if they would stop being friends with them or or tell other people and start making fun of them or um, you know I think uh, teenagers they are adults, uh, young adults, and I mean, I think they could they could make their own decision about it, uh, of who to tell. Well, I think it'd be cool to hear from a lot of them and different opinions and what people have to say. Um, so how can they come and weigh in on this discussion? So they could go on our website on ask, www.askanudis.com and they can create an account, it's very easy, and answer this teenager's question. And to find out what's going on with YNA in the fall? You can go to our main website at yna.me to get to the main Young Naturist America website for events and more information. So as I said in the uh, last show, this seems more natural and uncomfortable. So we're going to keep doing this. Obviously, these two were done live at the Naturist Festival here at Bear Oaks. But we're going to try to record future ones uh, using Skype so you'll get the same kind of banter, which is more fun for us and I think more interesting for you as well. 
During the festival, we had a performance of the Vagina Monologue. Um, it was done by uh, six young women, uh, aged 17 to 55, and uh, they started planning and rehearsing way back in April for this July performance. And it was it was it was fantastic. It was very well received. It was incredibly well done. I I saw the professional version a number of years ago uh, when it came to Toronto. And uh, I don't think they had anything on these folks in the performance that I saw here at Bear Oaks. In fact, there might have been more passion in this one. Um, in a way, you know, it's even more relevant to naturism and to naturists because that's what we talk about. Acceptance of all our body part and not having a shame. And that's that's why this was so appropriate for the Naturist Festival and for our performance at Bear Oaks. I mean, obviously, um, they were nude, which is a little different, but not for us. I mean, in fact, you didn't really notice that. You're so used to it. Um, and I think in some way it, it worked better uh, because they were talking about their bodies and not hiding them. It seemed more natural. Uh, it, it really brought the contrast of the experiences they were doing. If you don't know about the Vagina Monologues, it was originally written in the, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, in the 90s. It was the result of uh, work by Eve Ensler, who wrote a book about it. She interviewed over 200 women about their memories and experiences about sexuality, and uh, they, they were talking about uh, intimacy and vulnerability and all kinds of things that, it's about being a woman that has a lot to do with uh, sexuality and vagina and who they are. I mean, that is partially how you define technically a woman, isn't it? So um, that got turned into a, this play that toured and was incredibly successful. And uh, these folks bought the book and decided to do uh, their own versions here at Bear Oaks. Obviously not the entire book. I don't think any performance is ever the entire book because there are so many monologues, but they picked several monologues to perform. And it's not just about um, what it says, but how you say it, how you, uh, you reproduce the interview and the experience of these women. So it was... Powerful enough that it w there was a request for a repeat performance. We had set up uh, 70 seats um, in this room that we have called the Outback. Uh, about 80 people actually ended up watching the show. More could not even get into the uh, space and missed it. And with the people way at the back in the 80, they couldn't hear very well because there was no sound amplification. They didn't expect this many people to turn up. So a second show uh, is performed, was performed in August. And we also did a, this radio play version. We decided to record it for you so that you can hear the performance as well. But at this point, I have to warn you that uh, there is some very frank discussion, uh, some language that some people might be offended by, and some discussion of maturity and sexuality. So if that kind of thing bothers you, um, then I suggest you press stop right now and uh, don't listen to the rest of it, or if there's people in the room that you think should not be listening to this, this might be a little too much for them, uh, because there's even discussions of uh, assault and sexual assault, uh, then you might also want to press stop. So are you still listening? Okay, here we go. I was worried. That's why I began this piece. I was worried about vaginas. I was worried about what we think about them, and more importantly, what we don't think about them. I was worried about my own vagina. It needed a context of other vaginas, 
a culture, a community of vaginas. There's so much darkness and secrecy surrounding them. Like the Bermuda Triangle. Nobody ever reports back from there. For starters, it's not even so easy to find your vagina. Women go weeks, months, sometimes even years without ever having to look at it. I interviewed a high-powered businesswoman who told me she was too busy. Looking at your vagina, she said, is a full day's work. You have to get down there, on your back, in front of a full-length mirror that's standing on its own. You have to get in the perfect position with the perfect light, which is then somehow shadowed by your arm or a leg in the position that you're in. You get all twisted up, your back is arched, your neck is killing you. You're exhausted by then. She said she didn't have time for that. She was busy. So I decided to talk to women about their vaginas, to do vagina interviews, which then became vagina monologues. I talked to over 200 women. At first, many of the women were a little reluctant to talk. They were a little shy. But once you got them going, you couldn't stop them. Women secretly love to talk about their vaginas, mainly because nobody's ever asked them before. Let's just start with the word vagina. Sounds like an infection at best. Maybe a medical instrument. Hurry, nurse, bring me the vagina. 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 It doesn't matter how many times you say it. It never actually sounds like a word you want to say. It's a totally ridiculous, completely unsexy word. If you try to use it during sex to be politically correct. Darling, could you stroke my vagina? You'll kill the act right there. I'm worried about vaginas. What we call them and don't call them. In Great Neck, they call it a pussycat. I remember one woman telling me her mother always said to her, don't wear your panties underneath your pajamas, dear. You gotta air out your pussycat. In Westchester, they call it a pookie. In New Jersey, a twat. There's powder box. Derriere. Poochie. Poopy. Peepee. Poopaloo. Poonani. A pal and a peach. Toady. Dee Dee. Nishi. Dignity. Monkey box. Coochie snorcher. Cooter. Labe. Gladys Siegelman. V.A. Wee wee. Horse spot. Nappy dugout. Mongo. A pajama. Fanny boo. Marshmallow. Aguli. Possible. Tamale. Totita. Connie. A Mimi in Miami. A split Kanish in Philadelphia. A Schmende in the Bronx. I'm worried about vaginas. I asked all the women I interviewed the same questions, and then I chose my favorite responses. Although, I must tell you, I never heard an answer I didn't love. I asked women, if your vagina got dressed, what would it wear? A beret. A leather jacket. Mmm, silk stockings. A mink. Ooh, a pink boa. A male tuxedo. Jeans. Something form-fitting. Mm. Emeralds. An evening gown. Sequins. A male tuxedo. A tutu. <laughs> See-through black underwear. Mm. A taffeta ball gown. A large hat full of flowers. Oh, a leopard hat. Purple velvet pajamas. Angora. A red bow. 
ermine and pearls. Something machine washable. Ooh, a costume eye mask. A silk kimono. Reading glasses. <laughs> Sweatpants. A tattoo. An electrical shock device to keep unwanted strangers away. <laughs> High heels. Lace. In combat boots. Purple feathers and twigs and shells. <laughs> Cotton. A pinafore. A bikini. A slicker. I asked women, if your vagina could talk, what would it say in two words? Slow down. Is that you? Feed me. I want. Yum, yum. Oh, yeah. Start again. No, over there. Lick me. Stay home. Brave choice. Think again. More, please. Embrace me. Let's play. Don't stop. Rock me. Enter at your own risk. Come inside. Not yet. Hey, whoa, mama. Yes, yes. More, more. Remember me? Oh, God. Thank God. I'm here. Let's go. Let's go. Find me. Thank you. Bonjour. Oh, too hard. Don't give up. Where's Brian? <laughs> That's better. Yes, there, there. I interviewed a group of women between the ages of 65 and 75. These interviews were the most interesting and poignant of all, mainly because many of these women had never had a vagina interview before. I felt terribly lucky to have grown up in the feminist era. I found that many of the women in this age group had very little conscious relationship with their vaginas. One woman I interviewed was 72 years old and had never even seen her vagina. She had only touched herself when she was washing in the shower and never with conscious intention. She had never had an orgasm. At 72, she went into therapy, and with the encouragement of her therapist, went home one day, played some relaxing music, and took a bath, and discovered her vagina. She said it took her over an hour because she was arthritic by then, but when she found her clitoris, she said she cried. This monologue is for her. Down there? Haven't been down there since 1953. Oh, no, has nothing to do with Eisenhower. It's like a cellar down there. It's damp and clammy. <laughs> Believe me, you don't want to go there. You'd get sick, suffocating, very nauseating. Smells of clamminess and mildew and everything. Blech. Smells unbearable. Gets in your clothes. No, there was no accident. It didn't blow up or catch on fire or anything. Nothing so dramatic. Well, never mind. No, never mind. I can't talk to you about this. What's a smart girl like you going around talking to old ladies like me about their dumb theirs for? 
We didn't do that sort of thing when I was a girl. What? Jeez. Okay. There was this boy, Andy Letkov. Oh, he was really cute. Well, I thought he was cute. He was tall, like me, and I really liked him. He asked me out on a date in his car. No, I can't talk about this. I, I can't do this. You, you just know it's there, that's all, like the cellar. There's rumbles down there sometimes. You can hear the pipes and things get caught like animals and things and it gets wet. And sometimes someone comes and repairs the leaks. But it's gotta be there because every house needs a cellar. Otherwise, the bedroom would be in the basement. Oh, oh, yes. Andy, Andy Letkov. Oh, I really liked him. We were out in his car, a brand new white Chevy Bel Air. I remember thinking that my legs were too long for the seat. I have long legs. They were bumping against the dashboard. I was looking at my large knees when suddenly he kissed me with authority like they do in the movies. And well, that got me excited. It, it got me so excited that there was a flood down there. <laughs> it was like a force of passion, a river of life that was flooding out of me right through my panties, right onto the seat of his brand new white Chevy Bel Air. It, it wasn't pee and it smelled. Well, I didn't think it did, but he said, Andy said that it smelled like sour milk and that I was going to stain the seat of his car. He said that I was a weird, stinky girl. I tried to explain that it was his kiss that got me by surprise, that usually I didn't do that. I tried to fix the stain with my dress, but I just made it worse. Andy drove me home. And when I closed the door of his car, I closed the store forever. Closed for business never reopened. I went out with other boys, but just the thought of flooding made me nervous, so I never let myself go again. I had dreams. Crazy dreams, stupid dreams. Why Bert Reynolds? We really didn't do much for me in life, but in my dreams, Oh, there was always Bert and I. 
Bert and I, Bert and I, <laughs> we would go out to a restaurant like the ones in Atlantic City with large chandeliers and stuff everywhere and thousands of servers with vests on. Bert would offer me an orchid corsage and I would pin it to my dress. We would laugh. We would eat shrimps, large shrimps, fabulous shrimps. We would laugh some more. We were happy together. And then he would look at me in the eyes. He would pull me right in the middle of the restaurant and just as he's about to kiss me, the restaurant would start spinning. Pigeons would fly from under the tables. I never understood why there were pigeons in there. And then the flood, it would start and it would pour out of me and pour and pour. The whole restaurant would get full of water. There would be little boats and fish and bird. Right there, in the middle of the restaurant with water all the way up to his knees, looking horribly, horribly disappointed that I've done it again. Now I don't dream anymore. Not since they took everything that I had to do with down there. The uterus, the tubes, the whole works. <laughs> the doctor wanted to be funny. He said, well, you don't use it, or you lose it. But in fact, I had cancer. They had to take everything out. What use was it anyways, huh? Highly overrated. I do other things. Dog shows, I sell antiques. What do you mean, what it would wear? What kind of question is that, what it would wear? It would wear a sign. Clothes due to flooding. <laughs> What would it say? What kind of question is that? What would it say? It's not a person that speaks. It's a, it's a thing down there that's closed for a long, long time. You happy now? You made me talk. You made an old lady talk about her down there. You feel better? Well, I must tell you, you're the first person I've ever spoken about that and I feel a little bit better. a six-year-old girl. If your vagina got dressed, what would it wear? Red Converse and a Blue Jays cap worn backwards. If it could speak, what would it say? It would say, 
words that begin with B and T. Violin and turtle are examples. What does your vagina remind you of? It reminds me of a pretty dark peach or a diamond I found in a treasure one time, and it's mine. <laughs> well, what's special about your vagina? I know somewhere really deep down, it's got a really, really smart brain. <laughs> what does your vagina smell like? Um, snowflake. When I returned to New York after my first trip, I was in a state of outrage. Outrage that 20,000 to 70,000 women were being raped in the middle of Europe in 1993 as a systematic tactic of war, and no one was doing anything to stop it. A friend asked me why I was surprised. She said that half a million women are raped in this country every year, and that in theory, we were not at war. I was walking down Manhattan when I was suddenly struck by a disturbing image on the front page of Newsday. It was a photo of a group of six women after being returned home from a rape camp in Bosnia. Their faces revealed shock and despair. But even more disturbing was the sense that something sweet, something pure, had forever been lost in each of their lives. This monologue is for the women of Bosnia. My vagina was green, water soft, pink fields, cow mooing, sun resting, sweet boyfriend touching lightly with a soft piece of blonde straw. There's something between my legs. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it is. I do not touch. Not now. Not anymore. Not since. My vagina was chatty. So much saying, so many words. Can't quit trying, can't quit saying, oh yes, oh yes. Not since I dream there's a dead animal sewn in down there. The thick black fishing line and the bad dead animal smell cannot be removed. And its throat is slit and it bleeds through all my summer dresses. My vagina singing all girl songs, all goat bell ringing songs, vagina songs, vagina home songs. Not since the soldiers put a long, thick rifle inside me. So cold. A steel rod canceling my heart. Don't know whether they're going to shoot or shove it through my spinning brain. Six of them. Monstrous doctors with black masks. Shoving bottles at me too. There were sticks and the end of a broom. My vagina, swimming river water, clean river water over sun-baked stones, over stones, over clit stones, over and over 
not since I heard the sound of the skin tear, lemon screeching sounds. Not since a piece of my vagina came off in my own hand, a part of the lip. Now one side of the lip is completely gone. My vagina, a live wet water village, my vagina hometown. Not since they took turns for seven days, leaving their dirty sperm inside me, smelling like smoked meat and feces. It became a river of poison and pus and all the crops died, and all the fish. My vagina, a live, wet water village. But they invaded it, and they butchered it, and they burned it down. I do not go there anymore. I do not visit. I live someplace else now. I don't know where that is. So this is how I came to love my vagina. It's embarrassing because it's not politically correct. I mean, I know it should have happened in a bath with salt grains from the Dead Sea, Enya playing, me loving my woman self. I know the story. Vaginas are beautiful. Our self-hatred is only the internalized repression and hatred of the patriarchal culture. It isn't true. Pussies unite. <laughs> I mean, if we'd been born in a culture where we had been taught that fat thighs are beautiful, we'd all be pounding down milkshakes and cookies spending our days thigh-expanding. But we didn't grow up in that culture. I hated my thighs, and I hated my vagina even more. I thought it was incredibly ugly. I was one of these women who looked at it, and from that moment on, wished I hadn't. It made me sick. I pitied anyone who had to go down there. In order to survive, I began to pretend there was something else between my legs. I imagined furniture. Uh, cozy futons with light cotton comforters, velvet settees, um, pretty things, silk handkerchiefs, quilted potholders, uh, place settings, or miniature landscapes, clear crystal lakes or moisty Irish bogs. Whenever I had sex with a man, I pictured him inside a mink-lined muffler, or a red rose, or a Chinese bowl. <laughs> then I met Neil. Neil was the most ordinary man I ever met. He was tall and thin and nondescript, and he wore khaki clothes. He didn't like spicy foods, and he didn't listen to Enigma. Uh, he wasn't into sexy lingerie. 
In the summer, he spent time in the shade. He didn't talk about his inner feelings. He didn't have any problems or issues. He wasn't even an alcoholic. He wasn't funny or charismatic. I didn't particularly like Neil. I would have missed him altogether if I hadn't dropped my change on the deli floor. When he handed me back my pennies and quarters and his hand accidentally touched mine, something happened. I went to bed with him. <laughs> That's when the miracle occurred. Turned out that Neil loved vaginas. He was a connoisseur. He loved the way they felt, the way they tasted, the way they smelled. But most important, he loved the way they looked. The first time we had sex, he told me he had to see me. I'm right here, I said. No, you, he said. I need to see you. Turn on the light, I said. Thinking he was a weirdo, I was freaking out in the dark. He turned on the light. Okay, he said. I'm ready to see you. I'm right here, I said. <laughs> then he started to undress me. What are you doing, Neil? I need to see you. I need to see what you look like. But you've seen a red leather couch before. <laughs> no, he said. I need to see you. No need, I said. Just dive in. Neil continued. He would not stop. I wanted to throw up and die. Okay, he said. I'm ready, ready to see you. This is awfully intimate, I said. Can't you just dive in? No, he said. It's who you are. I need to look. I held my breath. He looked and looked. He gasped and groaned and smiled. His face got, he got breathy and his face changed. He didn't look ordinary anymore. He looked like a hungry, beautiful beast. You're so beautiful, he said. You're elegant and deep and innocent and wild. You saw that there, I said? It was like he read my poem. <laughs> I saw that, he said, and more, much, much more. He stayed looking like that for nearly an hour. It was like he was studying a map or observing the moon or looking into my eyes. But it was my vagina. In the light, I watched him, and he was so genuinely peaceful and euphoric I began to get wet and turned on. I began to see myself the way he saw me. I began to feel beautiful and delicious, like a great painting or a waterfall. Neil wasn't afraid. He wasn't grossed out. I began to swell, began to feel proud. And Neil lost himself there. And I was with him in my vagina and we were gone. This next monologue is one woman's story as she told it to me. I met her in a shelter about five years ago. I'd like to tell you it's an unusual story. Brutal, extreme, but it isn't. In fact, it's not any more disturbing than many of the stories I've heard in the years since. Poor women 
suffer terrible sexual violence that goes unreported because of their social class. These women often don't have access to therapy or other methods of healing. The repeated abuse ultimately eats away at their self-esteem, leading them to drugs and prostitution, and in many cases, AIDS and death. Fortunately, this particular story has a different outcome. This woman met another woman in that shelter, and they fell in love. Through their love, they found their way out of the shelter system and have a beautiful life together today. I wrote this piece for them, for their amazing spirits, for the women we do not see, who hurt and who need us. Memory, five years old. My mama tells me in a scary, loud, life-threatening voice to stop scratching my coochie snorcher. Well, I become afraid that I gone and scratched it off down there. I do not touch myself again, not even in the tub. I remember being in the tub, though, and putting band-aids over my coochie snorcher to cover the hole. And they just floated off in the water. I imagine a stopper, a bathtub plug up there, stop things from entering me. I wear three pairs of happy, hot padded cotton underwear under my snap-up PJs. And I still want to touch myself. But I don't. Memory, seven years old. Edgar Montaigne, who is 10, gets angry at me and punches me right between the legs with all his might. Wow, I feel like he breaks my entire self. I limp home, I can't pee. When my mama asks what happened and I told her what Edgar did to me, she yells at me and tells me to never let anyone touch me down there again. I tried to explain to her, Mama, he didn't touch it. He punched it. <laughs> Memory, nine years old. I'm bouncing and falling on my bed and impale my coochie snurcher on the bedpost. <laughs> I make high-pitched screamy noises that come straight from my coochie snorcher's mouth. I get taken to the hospital where they sew me up, where I've been torn apart down there. Memory, 10 years old. I'm at my father's house and he's having a party. Everybody's drinking. I'm downstairs in the basement all by myself trying on my new white cotton bra and panty set that my daddy's girlfriend just gave me. And suddenly, this big man, Alfred, my father's best friend, comes up behind me and pulls down my underpants and sticks his big, hard penis into my coochie snorcher. I scream, I kick, I try to get him off, but he's already got it in. Suddenly my father's there, and there's, he's got a gun, and there's this loud noise and blood. Lots and lots of blood all over Alfred and me. I'm sure my coochie snorch has fallen out for good. Alfred's paralyzed for life, and I don't get to see my father again for another seven years. Memory, 13 years old. My coochie snorcher is a very bad place. 
a place of pain, nastiness, punching, invasion, and blood. Lots and lots of blood. It's a bad luck zone. Sight for mishaps. I imagine a freeway in between my legs and girl, I am traveling far away from here. Memory, 16 years old. There's this gorgeous 24-year-old woman in our neighborhood, and I stare at her all the time. This one day, she invites me into her car and asks me if I like to kiss boys, and I tell her that I do not like to do that. And then she says she wants to show me something, and she leans over and puts her lips so softly on mine, and then she puts her tongue in my mouth. Wow. She asked me if I'd like to come over to her house, and then she kisses me again. She tells me to relax, to feel it, to let our tongues feel it. She asked my mama if I can come over to her house later on, and my mama's delighted that such a beautiful, successful woman has taken such an interest in me. I'm scared, but really I can't wait. Her apartment's fantastic. She's got it hooked up. It's the 70s, so imagine the beaded curtains, the fuzzy pillows, the mood lights. I decide right there that I want to be a secretary like her when I grow up. <laughs> the beautiful lady makes herself a vodka and asks me what I'd like to drink. I tell her I'll have the same. She says she doesn't think my mama would appreciate me drinking vodka. And I say, I don't think she'd appreciate me kissing girls, neither. <laughs> and the pretty lady makes me a drink. And then she changes into this chocolate satin teddy. And she is so beautiful. And I always thought bull daggers were ugly. I say, you look great. And she says, so do you. And I say, all I got is this white cotton bra and panty set. And then she changes me slowly into this lavender satin teddy. And the alcohol has gone to my head and I am loose and ready. I notice this beautiful poster of this naked woman above her bed as she gently lays me down. And just our bodies rubbing together makes me come. Then she does everything to me and my coochie snurcher that I always thought was nasty before. And wow, I'm so hot, so wild. She says, your vagina, untouched by man, smells so fresh, so sweet. Wish I could keep it that way forever. Well, I get crazy wild. And then the phone rings. It's my mama, of course. And I'm sure she knows she catches me at everything. And I'm breathing heavy, so I'm trying to sound normal when I answer the phone. She says, what's the matter with you, girl? You been running? I say, no, mama, just exercising. <laughs> then she tells the beautiful secretary to make sure I'm not around boys. And the lady tells her, trust me, there's no boys around here. <laughs> Afterwards, 
The gorgeous lady teaches me everything about my coochie snorcher. She makes me play with myself in front of her. She teaches me all the different ways to give myself pleasure. She's very thorough. <laughs> she tells me to always know how to give myself pleasure, so I'll never need to rely on a man. In the morning, I'm worried I've become butch because I'm so in love with her. She laughs, but I never see her again. I realized then that she was my surprising, unexpected, politically incorrect salvation. She lifted up my sorry-ass coochie snorcher into some kind of heaven. been obsessed with naming things. If I could name them, I could tame them. If I could name them, I could know them. They could be my friends. For example, I had a large collection of frogs when I was little girls. Stuffed frogs, crystal frogs, plastic frogs, neon frogs, happy battery operated frogs. <laughs> Each one of them had a name. I would get to know them for a while before I named them. I would line them on my bed and watch them in daylight, wear them in my coat pockets and hold them in my pretty little hands. I would get to know them by their texture, their smell, their shape, their size, their sense of humor. Then I would name them in this splendid naming ceremony. Surrounding them by their frog friends, I would dress them in ceremonial coats, put sparkles and gold stars on them, stand them in front of the frog chapel, and name them. First, I would whisper the coveted name into their ear. You are my froggy doodle mashipa. Then, I would repeat it out loud for all the other excited frogs to hear, some of which were waiting for their own name. Froggy Doodle Mashie Pie. Then there would be singing, usually the name repeated over and over again, joined by all the other frogs. Froggy Doodle Mashie Pie. Froggy Doodle Mashie Pie. This followed by dancing. I would line the frogs up, dance in and out of them, hopping like a frog and making froggy noises, all the while holding the newly christened frog into my hands or arms, depending on the size. Oh, it was an exhausting ceremony, but crucial. It would have been fine if it had been limited to frogs, but soon I started naming everything. I named the floors, the doors, the stairs, the chairs. Ben, for example, was my flashlight. Named after my kindergarten teacher was always in my business. Eventually, I named all the parts of my body. My hands, Gladys. They were functional and basic, like Gladys, Gladys. My shoulders, shorty, 
They were strong and a little bit belligerent. I named my breasts Betty. They weren't Veronica, but they weren't ugly either. Naming my dung there hmm, wasn't so easy. It wasn't like naming my hands. No, it was complicated. My dung there was alive, much harder to pinpoint. So, it remained unnamed, and as unnamed, untamed, unknown. We had a babysitter around that time, Sarah Stanley. She had this high-pitched voice that made you pee. When I was taking my bath one night, she said to make sure to wash my itsy-bitsy. I'm not sure I like that name. It took me a while to even know what she was talking about. But there was something about her voice. The name stuck. Yep, there it is. My itsy-bitsy. <laughs> Unfortunately, the name followed me into adulthood. On my first night in bed with the man I would later on marry, I told him that my itsy-bitsy was shy, but eager. And if he would surely be patient, she would reveal her mysteries. <laughs> he was a little freaked out, I think. But as is his nature, he went along with it. And he even called her by name. Itsy Bitsy, are you ready? I myself was never crazy about the name, so what happened later on is not surprising. One night, my husband and I were in the act, and he called out to her. Itsy Bitsy, come on out, come and play but she did not respond. It was as if suddenly she wasn't there. Itsy bitsy, come on out, it's me, your biggest fan. <laughs> no word, no motion. So I called her. Itsy bitsy, come on out, don't do this to me. Not a word. Not a sound. Itsy was dead and mute and gone. Itsy Bitsy! For days she didn't come, then weeks, then months, I became despondent. I reluctantly told a friend of mine, Teresa, who was spending all of her time in this women's club. I said, Teresa, Itsy Bitsy won't speak to me. She won't return my calls. <laughs> Who is Itsy Bitsy, she said. My Bitsy, I said, my Itsy. <laughs> what are you talking about, she said, in a voice that suddenly sounded much deeper than mine. You mean your vulva, girl. Vulva, I said. What exactly is that? It's the package, she said. It's the entire deal. Vulva. Vulva. 
I could feel something unlock. Itsy Bitsy was wrong. I knew it all along. I couldn't see Itsy Bitsy. I didn't know who or what she was, but she didn't sound like a lip or an opening. That night, we named her, my husband Randy and I, just like the frogs. Stood her in front of the body chapel with sexy clothes, lit candles. At first, we whispered it. Falva. Falva. To make sure that she would hear. Falva, are you there? There was sweetness. And something definitely stirred. Volva, are you real? And we sang the Volva song, which didn't involve croaking, but kissing. <laughs> and we danced the Volva dance. And all the body parts were aligned. Shorty, Gladys, and Betty. And they were definitely listening. I call it cunt. I've reclaimed it. Cunt. I really like it. Cunt. Listen to it. Cunt. C. K. K. Cackle. Cavern. Clit. Cute. Come. Closed. Closed inside. K. Then you. Q. Curvy. Inviting. Sharkskin. You. Uniform. Under. Up. Urge. Uh, uh, and then N. Cun, snug letters fitting perfectly together. N, nest, nexus, now, nice, nice, always depth, always well-rounded in uppercase. N, a jagged, wicked electrical pulse. N, soft N, warm N. Then T, sharp, certain, tangy, T. Texture, taste, tent, tantalizing, tactile. Tell me, tell me, cunt, say it, cunt, 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 To love women, to love our vaginas, to know them and touch them and be familiar with who we are and what we need, to satisfy ourselves, to teach our lovers how to satisfy us, to be present in our vaginas, to speak of them out loud, to speak of their hunger, their pain, their loneliness, their humor, to make them visible so they cannot be ravaged in the dark without great consequence. 
so that our center, our motor, our point, our dream is no longer detached, mutilated, numb, broken, invisible, or ashamed. We need to talk about entering vaginas. So come on, come on in. I love vaginas. I love women. I do not see them as separate things. Women pay me to dominate them, to excite them, to make them come. I didn't start out like this. No, to the contrary, I started out as a lawyer. But then in my late 30s, I became obsessed with making women happy. There were so many unfulfilled women, so many women with no access to their sexual happiness. It began as a mission of sorts, but then I got involved in it. I got very good at it, kind of brilliant. It was my art. I started getting paid for it, and it was as if I had found my calling. Tax law seemed completely boring and insignificant then. <laughs> I wear outrageous outfits when I dominate women, lace and silk and leather. Oh, when I use props, whips, handcuffs, ropes, dildos. There was nothing like this in tax law. There were no props, no excitement, and I hated those blue corporate suits. Although I do wear them now from time to time in my new line of work, and they serve quite nicely. <laughs> Context is all. There were no props, no outfits in corporate law. There was no wetness, no dark, mysterious foreplay. There were no erect nipples, no delicious mouths, but mainly there was no moaning. Not the kind I'm talking about anyway. This was the key I see now. Moaning was the thing that ultimately seduced me and got me addicted to making women happy. When I was a little girl, I would hear women in the movies making love, making strange orgasmic moaning noises. I used to laugh. I got strangely hysterical. I could hardly believe that huge, outrageous, ungoverned sounds like that just came out of women. <laughs> oh. I longed to moan. I used to practice in my room uh, in front of a mirror on a tape recorder, moaning in various keys, various tones, sometimes with very operatic expressions, sometimes with more reserved, almost withheld expression. But always, when I played it back, it sounded fake. It was fake. It wasn't rooted in anything sexual, really. Only in my desire to be sexual. Then, when I was ten, I had to pee really badly once on a car trip. It went on for almost an hour, and when I finally got to pee in this dirty little gas station, it was so exciting, I moaned. I moaned as I peed. <laughs> I could hardly believe it, me moaning in an Esso station somewhere in the middle of northern Ontario. <laughs> I realized right then that moans are associated with not getting what you want right away, with putting things off. 
I realized moans were best when they came out of this deep, mysterious part of you that was speaking its own language. I realized that moans were, in fact, that language. I became a moaner. It made most men anxious. Frankly, it terrified them. I was loud and they couldn't concentrate on what they were doing. They'd lose focus. <laughs> then they'd lose everything. <laughs> we couldn't make love in people's homes. The walls were too thin. I got a reputation in my building and people stared at me with contempt in the elevator. Men thought I was too intense. Some called me insane. I began to feel bad about moaning. I got quiet and polite. I made noise into a pillow. Uh, I, I learned to choke my moan, to, to hold it back like a sneeze. Then I started getting headaches and stress-related disorders. I was becoming hopeless when I discovered women. I discovered that most women loved my moaning. But more important, I discovered how deeply excited I got when other women moaned. When I could make other women moan. It became a kind of passion, discovering the key, unlocking the vagina's mouth, unlocking this voice, this wild song. I made love to quiet women, and I found this place inside them, and they shocked themselves in their moaning. I made love to moaners, and they found a deeper, more penetrating moan. I became obsessed. I longed to make women moan, to be in charge, like a conductor, maybe, or a band leader. It was a kind of surgery, a kind of delicate science, finding the tempo, the exact location or home of the moan. That's what I called it. Sometimes I found it over a woman's jeans. Sometimes I sneaked up on it off the radar, quietly disarming the surrounding alarms and moving in. <laughs> Sometimes I used force, but not violent, oppressing force. No, more like dominating, I'm gonna take you someplace, why don't you lie back, enjoy the ride kind of force. Sometimes it was simply mundane. I found the moan before things even started while we were eating salad or chicken just casually right there with my fingers there it is like that real simple in the kitchen all mixed in with the balsamic vinegar <laughs> sometimes I used props I loved props sometimes I made the woman find her own moan in front of me I waited stuck it out until she opened herself I wasn't fooled by the minor, more obvious moans. No, I pushed her further, all the way into her power moan. You see, there's the clit moan. The vaginal moan. The combo clit vaginal moan. The pre-moan. The almost moan. The right on it moan. The elegant moan. The grace slick moan. The wasp moan. The semi-religious moan. Um, 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 oh, yeah. um, um. 
the baby moan. The doggy moan. The southern moan. The uninhibited militant bisexual moan. The machine gun moan. The tortured zen moan. The diva moan. The twisted toe orgasm moan. And finally, the surprise triple orgasm moan. there in the room when her vagina opened. We were all there, her mother, her husband, and I. And the nurse from the Ukraine with her whole hand up there in her vagina, turning and feeling with a rubber glove, while she casually talked with us as if she was turning on a loaded faucet. I was there in the room when her contractions made her crawl on all fours made unfamiliar moans seep out of her pores. And there still, after hours, when she screamed suddenly wild, her arms striking at the electric air. I was there when her vagina changed from a shy sexual hole to an archeological tunnel, a sacred vessel, a deep well with a tiny stuck child inside waiting to be rescued. I saw the colors of her vagina. They changed. First the bruised, broken blue, then the blistering tomato red, the gray-pink, the dark, the blood like perspiration along the edges, the yellow-white liquid, the shit, the clots pushing out of all the holes harder and harder, saw the baby's head through the hole, scratches of black hair. Just behind the bone, a hard, round memory as the nurse from the Ukraine kept turning and turning her slippery hand. 
I was there when both of us, her mother and I, each held leg, spread her wide, pushing with all of our strength against her pushing, and her husband sternly counting, one, two, three, <laughs> telling her to focus harder. I looked into her then. I couldn't get my eyes out of that place. We forget the vagina. All of us. What else would explain our lack of awe? Our lack of wonder? I was there when the doctor reached in with Alice in Wonderland spoons. Saw her vagina change to a wide operatic mouth singing with all its strength. First the little head, then the gray flopping arm, then the fast swimming body swimming quickly into our weeping arms. I was there later when I just turned and faced her vagina. I stood and I let myself see her spread wide, completely exposed, mutilated, swollen and torn bleeding all over the doctor's hands who was calmly sewing her there. I stood, and as I stared, her vagina became this wide, red, pulsing heart. The heart is capable of sacrifice. So is the vagina. The heart is able to forgive and repair. It can change its shape to let us in. It can expand to let us out. So can the vagina. It can stretch for us and ache for us, die for us and bleed and bleed us into this difficult, wondrous world. So can the vagina. I was there in the room. I remember. Most of the narration was done by Emily, who also did I Asked a Six-Year-Old Girl with Ramona. Ramona also did Reclaiming Cunt. Susie uh, performed The Flood and The Volva Club. Nikki performed My Vagina Was My Village and The Little Coochie Snorcher That Could. Karen performed Because He Liked to Look at It. And Julia performed The Woman Who Loved to Make Vaginas Happy. Julia, who also, by the way, is the one that performed uh, all those moans, uh, orgasmic moans so well. And the funny story here is uh, one of the first uh, rehearsals that she had to do, she couldn't be at the park in person, so she did it over the phone. And when they asked her where she was, she said she was in Starbucks. If you can imagine the look on the faces of everybody who was there. That's a setup worthy of uh, Meg Ryan in uh, When Harry Met Sally. Well, that's all for this episode of the Naturist Living Show, a f rather long one, given that we were we inserted that entire show. I hope you enjoyed listening. 
Uh, my name is Stéphane Deschain once again, and I'm the, your host for this episode and for the Naturist Living Show and the owner of Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. You can find link to uh, the items that were discussed in the show, which is mostly what was uh, discussed by Felicity of YNA, in the show notes, which is located on our website at naturistliving, one word, dot bear oaks, B-A-R-E, of course, bearoaks.ca, because we're in Canada. And if you want to send me a note or any information, I always enjoy hearing from you, dear listener. You can send an email to naturistliving, again, one word, at, in this case, because it's an email address, at bearoaks, B-A-R-E, bearoaks.ca, because we are in Canada. So join us again in about a month for the next episode of the Naturist Living Show. This episode of the Naturist Living Show was brought to you by Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park. Traditional naturist values in a modern setting. Traditional values means that naturism is more than just taking your clothes off. It is a life philosophy with physical, psychological, environmental, social and moral benefits. Bear Oaks Family Naturist Park strives to promote those naturist values in a modern setting that provides the amenities and services that our members and visitors expect. Free your body, free your mind. Learn more at www.bearoaks.ca. Thank you.